0: Fifteen. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh, my
1: goodness. Five, four, three,
0: two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. It is the Masson All-Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you. Brendan, softball update was raining and thundering and lightninging last night, and we figured, no softball game. This game's got to get called. They don't have a tarp, so if it rains any amount, really, you have to cancel because the field gets too wet to play. It's not like they have the drains that we have here. And so we just didn't show up. And lo and behold, our teammate and producer, Tim Leonard, drove past the field and saw that they were playing a game. It's dedication. It's too much dedication. Sure. Wet field seems like a torn ACL waiting to happen. But more importantly, how dare they play a game without their two best players? Their three best players, including Tim. That's a bold statement. I mean, I want to look... I want to get the, the camera It's not a here. correct
1: one, but it's a bold and statement. And I want to
0: say, you, you should have... To our teammates, to the umpires, to the opponents, frankly. When you show up and you see that Paul Mancano and Brandon Mortenson and Tim Leonard, your three big boppers in the lineup, your three high defensive war players in the field, have not shown up to this game, you should say for the sake of competition, we should not play this game here. Because we are... The most important players on that team. So how dare they? There's a lot of bold statements being thrown around right I'm, now. Frankly, I'm I'm insulted. I'm hurt. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm questioning a lot of things in my life right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, compare that to the fact that we were sitting in our apartment at 7.30 the time of the game. We had just found out that the game was still happening, and both of us just kind of went, eh. Well, you can't show up in the middle of the game. Now, You know, that's not... I, no part of me wanted to play in that softball game you got yesterday. Set, yeah. In no. those conditions. I, I mean, mean, what are we playing in Soldier Field in Chicago?
0: Exactly. That's topical.
1: I had a nice pasta reference dinner.
0: You know, I wanted to eat that. Right. And I didn't want to play and do physical activity. So... Just heartbreaking. I mean, I don't even know if we won or lost, but it was the playoffs, so it could have been our last game. No, I think it was the last game of the regular season. I are think sure? next week is the playoffs. Okay, well then we're we will... just going to show up for the playoffs. Right. The problem is, are we on the roster on September first? You know, do we are we even eligible to play in the playoffs? These are important questions,
1: and uh, that nobody cares. About. When
0: I show up next week, I'm gonna I'm gonna lay into some of our teammates and the umpires. I'm gonna file a complaint with the league. Wow. All right, Uh, on this podcast today, got plenty to talk about. We're going to talk about the Orioles' struggling offense, kind of look ahead to next year, to the offseason, because we're just four weeks away now from the end of the regular season, and look at areas that the Orioles could improve upon to help this struggling offense. And we're also going to talk about the rule changes, because plenty of new rules that we're going to have an entire offseason to discuss and to break down, but there are some immediate reactions to the rules and how they might affect the Orioles, how they might benefit the Orioles in some instances. So, Brendan, right now, the Orioles are in the midst of a bit of a slump, and we were expecting some kind of drop-off at some point over the course of the season. Right now, they had been playing such good baseball for such a long stretch of time, especially in the second half, that this slump felt not inevitable, But it did feel like at some point they were going to come back down to earth. And the problem was they were always fighting uphill to try to catch some of the teams in front of them with the Blue Jays and the Mariners and the Rays. And so any kind of slump, any kind of step
1: back is going to put them farther and farther back in the postseason race. And it's unfortunate timing because the Mariners are in a bit of a skid. Right now, I mean, they're not playing the kind of baseball that they were playing before, which was kind of an unbelievable pace. So they've come back down to earth a little bit as well. But you had these two series against the Blue Jays and the Red Sox where they were very winnable games. If you want to make the playoffs, you had to probably at least split with the Blue Jays because that's another team that is in the wildcard echelon. At least you took one game there. But then against the Red Sox... That's a team where you should be at least taking two of three. Because the Red Sox are pretty much out of playoff contention at that point. They are in the basement of the AL East. And if you are going to make the playoffs, then you need to beat the teams that you should beat. And the Boston Red Sox are a team that the Orioles should beat in a three-game series. And they only take one of those three games. So against the division, over the last seven, they drop five which is just not something you can do. I understand how difficult the AL East is, but this is the nature of the beast. This is the schedule that the Orioles have to go through if they want to make a playoff push, and it's unfortunate that this skid came against not only division opponents, but of course one of them being the Blue Jays who are ahead of them in the wildcard standings.
0: And look, I don't want to write the Orioles off just yet because theoretically they could still make the playoffs, and they got a couple games that, like that series against the Red Sox, They should win. They play the Nationals tonight and tomorrow, so they could, in theory, pick up a couple games there. They have to. I mean, that's the worst team in baseball, so you need to take both games from that team. And the Blue Jays and the Rays are in the midst of this mammoth five-game series. So, in theory, one team is going to hurt the other one, and one team could drop off, and if the Orioles play like they should against the Nationals, they could pick up a a couple games, but they are now... I believe, five and a half, six games out. I think it's six. So it is going to be an uphill battle. And remember, the season does go on a little bit longer than it has in previous years because of the, the lockout that pushed back the opening day for this year. So they do play a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday game. Instead of ending the season on a Sunday, they go a full week into the month of October. So it's not like the season ends like it usually does around October 1st. I think it ends on October 5th. Somewhere around there. They they have a little bit more time to play with, but time is running out, unfortunately. And unfortunately, a lot of it is because of the offense. The pitching, for the most part, aside from that awful 17-run game in Game 2 of that Red Sox series, the pitching has held up its part of the bargain. It is the offense that is struggling, and there are a lot of reasons for it. I think that you could point to some of their veterans slumping all at the wrong time. You could point to, frankly, the left field wall hurting some offensive production from righties like an Austin Hayes or Ryan Mountcastle. And you could point to some rookies hitting a bit of a rookie wall. And I think the question becomes now, with a small sample size left with the regular season going into the offseason, this is now critical time for Michael Elias to assess what he has right now in his roster and determine what areas he needs to improve upon going into next year. Because right now, the offense, they were shut out on Sunday. They scored more than four runs just three times in their last 17 games. I know it's kind of an arbitrary cutoff with four runs, but they really have not been hitting the ball particularly well. And on the season, they're 23rd in OPS, 15th in homers, and 21st in runs. And quite frankly, if they're going to be competitive in the American League East next year, with the Yankees and the Blue Jays and the Rays and maybe an improved Red Sox team, they have to produce more offensively than they have this year. They can't just rely on the pitching to put them at 90-plus wins in 2023.
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, the offensive slump has kind of been going on since about mid-August. It didn't show up as much. It towards the latter half of August, because like you said, the pitching has still been excellent. They were able to squeak out some games, but a lot of those wins felt like they were three to two, four to three. A lot of those kinds of wins, they're hitting 219 as a team since August 15th. And you mentioned kind of the arbitrary cutoff. If you just want to look at September, there are three games in September in which they've scored five or more runs. Two of them came against the Athletics, and the Athletics are probably the worst team in the American League. So you should be putting up runs against that team. They're not putting up runs against the teams that they need to beat, like we mentioned the Blue Jays and the Red Sox. So the offense, it's kind of hard to point to a singular player and say, hey, that guy is really slumping. There are a few players that we'll talk about that have not been great down the stretch. But as you said, Paul, it kind of just feels like the whole team is just not really performing that well. And maybe that's just how it goes sometimes in baseball where somebody at the top of the lineup isn't producing and it's just hard to kind of get things going if the top of the lineup isn't producing the way you want it to, the bottom of the lineup doesn't really have anything to go off of. It's, it's all cyclical and it all plays off of each other. But the whole team is slumping right now. And you can point to, I know a lot of fans have been very quick to point to Brandon Hyde's lineup decisions, but nobody is hitting all that well outside of Hadley Rutschman, because it's Hadley Rutschman, and he's not even lighting the world on fire over the last few weeks.
0: Yeah, maybe Anthony Santander still has been hitting fairly consistently. Yeah, but even
1: over the last few weeks, he hasn't been great. Yeah. The batting average is pretty low for Santander over the last few weeks. So... It is Brandon Hyde's job to determine who the hottest bats
0: are and who the best guys are to put in a lineup night in, night out to try to win games. But it's Michael Elias's job to assess what the Orioles have been doing the, the entire season and especially the last month and determine where to go from here and where that offense is going to come from in 2023. Do the Orioles need to make an upgrade or are the guys that they have in-house, is it enough to count on them getting older, getting more experienced, and getting better to form a formidable lineup going forward? There are certain areas, I think, that Michael Elias... I don't want to get too much on this podcast, and we won't get names, specific names, probably outside of a few generic stereotypes or archetypes of players, but where the Orioles could upgrade offensively. And I think there are a few positions that we... Safe to say the Orioles probably don't need to upgrade and probably will not upgrade offensively.
1: But I think it's important to point out that the Orioles are now at the point of the rebuild where they are going from, this is a decent team. This is a pretty good team right now. They don't want to be a decent or pretty good team next season. They want to be a team that is competing for a playoff spot solidly next year. They want to be in that wild card race solidly in the discussion. So we're at the point of the rebuild where it's nice to have some hidden gems along the way. Players that were waiver claims or maybe weren't high up on a prospect list that all of a sudden turned into solid players that you could rely on day in and day out. That was fine over the last few seasons when the expectations weren't high. But for next season, the expectations are going to be a lot higher. I think fans and probably the front office as well are going to expect that this team makes a playoff push next season. So I think now is the time when you need to seriously look at some of the players that have been fun stories and reliable even though they kind of came out of nowhere and say, okay, is this player somebody who is going to help the Orioles in a significant way when this is a truly competitive team? Or were they somebody that was productive enough day in and day out when you weren't really expecting this team to win many games? I think there's a pretty clear distinction between those two kinds of players. And I think there are a lot of positions that Mike Elias and the Orioles need to evaluate and figure out which kind of player they have. I think it's less clear than it may appear. Because I think
0: there are a lot of guys that are on the borderline. The I Orioles, agree. The Orioles have a lot of good players. They don't have too many great players right now. The good thing is, I think they have some guys right now who are good, who can be great. I think of Gunnar Henderson. You don't need to upgrade third base, shortstop, wherever you want to put him next year. He's going to be in your lineup. And you have to hope that he's going to be better next year. But it's a good bet to assume that Gunnar Henderson, the top prospect in all of baseball, is going to improve net going forward next year. So that's safe to say. Personally, I'm okay with Cedric Mullins. I think that he crosses the threshold between fun, young player and very productive player. I don't think the Orioles should, and I don't think they will look to make an upgrade in center field because, quite frankly, center field has been one of the bright spots for them, and Mullins has been a bright spot. So you don't need to upgrade there. And then Anthony Santander, we were talking about him a couple months ago as a trade piece. You almost can't trade him now because... He has been your most productive from start to finish in terms of the season. Adley, since he came up in mid-May, has been your most productive offensive player. But from opening day to the last game of the regular season, Anthony Santander has been your most productive offensive player. He's closing in, could perhaps win the Triple Crown for the Orioles as a, a member of this team. So you keep Anthony Santander, I think... You could trade him in theory, but you don't want to get rid of one of your better offensive players.
1: So those are three spots I think are pretty much locked in going into next year. Yeah, I would say there's three spots as well. I would just swap Anthony Santander for Adley Rutschman at catcher. Yeah, and and Adley Rutschman as a
0: starting catcher. I think that
1: their catcher
0: as a whole does need an upgrade, but obviously not with your starting member.
1: When you're looking at starters, I agree. I think there are three spots that you just flat out don't need to upgrade, which is wherever Gunnar Henderson is playing, Yes, yeah. probably third base, starting catcher with Adley Rutschman, center field with Cedric Mullins. I think those are the three spots. Anthony Santander kind of falls into the category of not a high priority to upgrade. I think there's a few spots there that aren't a high priority to upgrade. Ryan Mountcastle is fine. I think he is set as your first baseman. He's had a bit of a down year not performing as well as we would have expected, but I don't expect them to upgrade from Ryan Mountcastle. Anthony Santander in right field, again, not a player that you really need to upgrade. Whether he is going to be your starting right fielder, I think is up for a little bit more of a debate because Anthony Santander is not great defensively, but he is giving you value offensively. So maybe you say, okay, we could upgrade in right field but keep Anthony Santander on this team as a DH yeah. fourth, fifth outfielder, I think that's a possibility rather than just cementing him into your everyday right fielder role. If you, if you want to compete next year,
0: you have to have a productive DH slash right fielder right. offensively. And to me, I don't see how you get much better than Anthony Santander right now unless you're willing to go out and spend a ton of money on a free agent corner outfielder. But then why would you not spend that money on a guy to replace Austin Hayes and left, who we
1: will discuss in a moment? But for me, again, he falls into that category of should be good. Yeah. Anthony Santander is not a high priority to upgrade from because he's a good player. Yeah. And my only question mark there is whether or not you want to continue to start him in right field or if you look for an upgrade in the outfield and have Anthony Santander be... a, a Mostly a DH and sometimes playing right field, and maybe you'll get an upgrade just from the development of Kyle Stowers in the offseason as well.
0: Yeah. All right. Areas of concern, however. Other than Gunnar Henderson in the infield, this is a very light-hitting infield. Like you said, Brendan, I think Mountcastle is okay at first base. He's having a down year by his standards, but his numbers still are not terrible. When you factor in the left field wall being moved back, when you factor in this kind of slumps that he's gone through and gotten himself out of over the course of the year, I think it's okay to have Ryan Maucastle. I think that is enough production at first base in terms of what he has given you.
1: And he's young. He has plenty of room to develop. In no way, shape, or form am I panicking about Ryan Maucastle. I'm only pointing out that Hey, the offensive production has not been quite what we expected yeah. from Mountcastle, but he's still having a pretty good year. I've loved what we have seen from him defensively. He has developed a ton at that position. Last year, he was a pretty below average defensive first baseman, and now he's pretty good. Yeah, So I'm happy with Ryan Mountcastle. The offensive production left a little bit to be desired, but definitely not looking to upgrade your starting first baseman your backup first baseman, you need to upgrade. Yeah, I think y- you really
0: should look for somebody in the mold of a backup, left-handed hitting, power hitting first baseman. Yes. I think that is an area that you could definitely upgrade this offseason. Somebody to split time a little bit with Castle because I still don't want, I think the Orioles still don't want to give Adley Rutschman too many games at first base. They haven't done it at all this year at the big league level. We know he can play it in a pinch, but ideally Adley Rutschman is either your starting catcher or he's DHing. So I think that you're looking for somebody to fill the role of a backup first baseman better than we've seen Jesus Aguilar fill that role and better than we saw Tyler Nevin fill that role. I know Trey Mancini's name is going to be thrown out a lot this offseason because of the emotional ties to the organization. I think the Orioles, not to mention any names, but I think they should probably target a lefty to platoon a little bit with Maucastle. His splits aren't terrible. It's not like he hits righties very poorly, but a lefty who hits righties a little bit better would be a nice compliment, I think, to Maucastle. And I think it's a, a solid area to upgrade. That's an area on the margins
1: that might make the Orioles just a teens better. Might get them a couple wins here or there. And again, we'll discuss specific players more in the offseason when we're looking at potential Orioles offseason moves. But I agree. I don't think this needs to be a big money signing. I think it needs to be a veteran backup left-handed hitting first baseman. I'm sure there are players available that will fit that mold. But if you're looking for places to spend money, backup first baseman is not a place where you're going to spend a ton, but you should spend some. And the Orioles don't really have any other options internally at first
0: base. That's the problem. The only area in the Orioles' farm system that you could point to with a lack of depth, I think you could say, is first base. Because aside from Maucastle and Nevin, you really don't have many pur- pure first basemen. However, that's a good problem to have. If you're going to have any area on the diamond to have a lack of depth, I think first base is going to be the one that you're going to point to.
1: I think Kobe Mayo could turn into a first he could, baseman. Yeah. holding out hope that he is able to stick at third base. We haven't really seen evidence otherwise, but he has been getting a a lot of reps at first base. So I think you can kind of count him in that depth.
0: Yeah, you can. He is a righty, so you don't have the platoon. But look, if he turns into the hitter that many think he can be, then that's a good first base option. But he is still in double-A buoy, so he's still a ways away from the big league. So that's probably not going to be an option for 2023. So... Backup first baseman, definitely an issue. Middle of the diamond. You think shortstop, you think second base. Jorge Mateo has locked down shortstop this year. He has been more than what you've expected, especially defensively. Offensively, he is hitting still near the bottom of this roster. His OPS plus is below 100, so he's below league average. He's hitting about 222. Yes, he gives you a fair amount of homers, about 15 homers this year, but he's striking out a ton. He's not walking much. And he's at the bottom of your lineup almost every night. So you can't rely on him offensively. Yes, he's great defensively. But I think the Orioles would be wise to at least survey the market when it comes to shortstops this
1: offseason because there is a bevy of outstanding shortstops set to hit the market. I get conflicted on Jorge Mateo because on the one hand, I think that if Jorge Mateo is your opening day shortstop for 2023 you're fine with it because he gives you fantastic value defensively. And even if he is hitting eighth or ninth consistently in the lineup, you're fine with the fact that he's not going to be your best hitter, but he's still giving you a ton of value in other places. Jorge Mateo is a valuable player. He is a good shortstop right now, but he's not very good offensively. And like you said, I don't think it should be the Orioles' top priority because I think you're fine with Jorge Mateo as your starter for next season. But if a Carlos Correa, Trey Turner, Dansby Swanson type of player is available, which it looks like three of those guys will be, you have to at least look into it because that is a massive upgrade pretty much across the board from Jorge Mateo. And that's nothing against Jorge Mateo, but those three names in that echelon are just head and shoulders better. That's just kind of the reality of the situation. So if you're able to get one of those types of players, you have to go for it. But it's not a priority to upgrade from Mateo. And I think the second base and shortstop conversations, it's
0: a bit of a domino effect here because you can lump those two together and say middle infield in general. Because we're going to talk about the rule changes in a little bit, but banning the shift essentially and having to have two infielders on both sides of the diamond... I think makes it even more of a priority to have a great, rangy athlete with a good arm at second base, perhaps more than in previous years because that guy's going to be on an island against a lot of left-handed hitters. So, And you can't move infielders, according to the new rules, between batters. So you're going to want your second baseman to be very rangy, very speedy, very athletic with a quality arm as well. So in theory, the Orioles could trot out basically an infield with three shortstops, with Gunnar Henderson, with Jorge Mateo, and with free agent X if they decide to sign a shortstop and move those guys around depending on the lineup that they're facing. Have Gunnar at third, have Mateo at short, have this free agent at second base or mix it up depending on the kind of hitters that you're facing. That's not a bad thing to sign a shortstop and then play him at second base. And I think that the solution here, if you're looking for firepower in your offense, is probably going to be to sign somebody for the middle infield. Doesn't have to be a pure second baseman, but I think it makes sense to sign somebody to play second base who may be a natural shortstop, and then you still have Jorge Mateo there. So you're not getting rid of Jorge Mateo entirely. You're still having that quality defense at shortstop. You're still having that quality defense at third base with Gunnar Henderson, but you're upgrading the
1: infield nonetheless, and you're giving your lineup a middle-of-the-order bat. Yeah, second base, I think the conversation is better had as just a middle infield conversation, like you said, because I think the Orioles should sign a middle infielder. Yeah. It's tough to look specifically at one position or the other because at shortstop, you've got Jorge Mateo, and I like I said, I think you're fine with Mateo if he is your starter for next season. But then when you're looking at second base... It kind of just feels like you've got a lot of good, not great players there. And you don't really know if any of them can lock down second base for an entire season. Ramona Rias maybe gets bumped over there with Gunnar Henderson taking over a more permanent role at third base. I don't know if you want Ramona Rias as your everyday starter. Taryn Vavra. Do you want Vavra as your everyday starter? Is Jordan Westburg ready to take over an everyday starting role there? You just don't know. With any of those three... And I think if you're able to sign a free agent, it's an upgrade over just kind of figuring out which one of those three guys is going to start. We are getting
0: some questions about Westburg as well. Right now, Jordan Westburg has an 844
1: OPS with
0: AAA Norfolk. I think it's safe to say that he is close to the big leagues in terms of talent, in terms of readiness. Would you be comfortable going into next season... Let's say the Orioles don't upgrade that middle infield in a major way. Let's say maybe they sign a depth piece here or there. But let's say they go into next year with the middle infield of Jorge Mateo, of Gunnar Henderson, Taron Vavra, Ramon Rios, and let's say Jordan Westberg makes the opening day roster.
1: Is that enough going into next year? No. Because of where the team is. This This team has outperformed expectations this season. And I think the expectation for next year needs to be a playoff-caliber roster. And I like all of those players. This is nothing against any of those guys. We just haven't really seen enough from Arias, Westberg, obviously, who has not played in the big leagues yet, or Taron Vavra, to inspire enough confidence that one of those guys can lock down an everyday role at second base. Yeah, I, I just don't think we've seen it yet. And if you're going to be a playoff team, I think you need to have somebody there that is an established
0: starter. It's funny because this conversation would have been very different a year ago. We we talked last year about not wanting to sign a shortstop to block Jorge Mateo, not wanting to sign a shortstop, second baseman, third baseman to block Gunnar Henderson or to block Jordan Westberg. But like you said, Brendan, this is a different team right now. This is a team that is looking to compete and, and, some of the commenters are saying you can't block Jordan Westberg. I'd say you can't block Gunnar Henderson. I'd say you can't block Adley Rutschman. You can't block Colton Cowser, maybe. But that's probably the end of the list there. I think that Jordan Westberg is a exciting prospect. He's a top 10 prospect in your system. I believe, according to MLB Pipeline, he's around 7. He's that a top 100 prospect as well. He's a top, well. top 100 prospect. But frankly, you can't get to the point next year where, let's say Jordan Westberg makes this opening day roster and you're in late May, beginnings of June, and he's hitting a rookie wall, and he's hitting around 175, like we saw Adley Rutschman hit under the Mendoza line for his first six weeks of the season, and you are struggling to stay afloat in the AL East or in the wildcard race because you have a middle infielder who's playing every day in Jordan Westberg and not giving you enough offense. I really like Jordan Westberg. I, I think the Orioles are high on him internally, but if they want to be a legitimately competitive team from opening day until game 162, you have to be a little bit more confident. You have to be sure that your lineup can produce. And if Jordan Westberg isn't as good of a rookie as some of the other rookies that we've seen
1: recently, then that could really hurt your offense. Naturally, I think we and a lot of fans alike just tend to kind of fall in love with prospects. We look at double-A, triple-A numbers, and say, well, this guy has to have an everyday role at the big league club whenever he gets promoted. I don't think these two are the same. I think Jordan Westberg is a little bit of a better prospect. But I look at Kyle Stowers, and I think back to our conversations on this podcast where we talked about Stowers and said, hey, if Kyle Stowers, if and when he gets the call to the bigs, we can't imagine that the Orioles aren't going to use him in an everyday role. Because he has been mashing at AAA. He has done all of these things that he needs to do. There's just no way that Kyle Stowers gets called up and doesn't have an everyday role. And then what happened? He doesn't have an everyday role. We still really like Kyle Stowers. He has shown a lot of flashes at the big league level. He's come up with some clutch hits. That's great. The Orioles still don't have enough confidence in Stowers to give him everyday playing time. And you mentioned Gunnar Henderson and Adley Rutschman. Those are just different prospects. Those are the number one prospects in baseball, according to multiple outlets throughout their time as prospects. Those are guys that you give everyday roles immediately. And I don't think Jordan Westberg falls under that category. As much as I like Westberg and as much confidence as I think the Orioles have in him as a prospect, I don't think he is in that tier. I agree. And...
0: That is an area still that I think that the Orioles... Let's say you go into next year with those five guys that I mentioned, with Urias, with Mateo, with Henderson, with Westberg, with Vavra, and then you add an impact bat to that group, all of a sudden that changes, I think, this team's ceiling. Right. Right. Because now you're talking about Jordan Westberg as a potential bench piece. You're talking about Taron Vavra as a nice lefty bat off the bench. You're talking about Gunnar Henderson maybe taking a step forward, and you're allowing Ramona Reyes to be a true backup. That is a much better group, and I think that just the the ceiling of that group is much higher, and frankly, the floor is much higher as well because I think if you go into this offseason or go into next season just with what you have or you upgrade around the margins, you sign somebody to a two-year, $10 million contract, As a depth piece for the infield. That doesn't raise your ceiling as much as if you sign a true middle-of-the-order bat. To take some pressure off some of the other guys in your lineup. To take some pressure off Adley Rutschman. To take some pressure off Anthony Santander. And frankly, to turn this
1: lineup into a much more formidable group. I think you need to sign a solid middle infielder. Yeah. Whether it's a shortstop, whether it's a second baseman. Not a depth piece, an upgrade. I think you need at least one. I don't know who he starts over, whether it's he's starting over Jorge Mateo, or if you sign a shortstop and start him at second, keep Mateo in the lineup and figure it out with your depth pieces at second base. But you need an established hitter there. The other area of concern here that we've kind
0: of been avoiding is left field. And it's Austin Hayes. Because at the beginning of this year, we thought Austin Hayes had surely locked down his spot going forward. And at the very least, could be you know, your six-hitter in a very good lineup. All of a sudden, with the kind of second half that he has had, he has raised a lot of questions about his long-term future with this team. I still think Austin Hayes is a quality player. I still think he gives you some exciting pop. He's quality base runner. He is a great defensive left fielder, probably not a great center fielder if you were to stick him there, but could be a good fourth outfielder on a very, very good team. I don't know if he's a starting left fielder on a very, very good team. Maybe he is with a better team around him. But right now, the Orioles are looking to improve. And I'm not confident that Austin Hayes can be a middle-of-the-order bat on
1: this team going forward. The Austin Hayes conversation is really tricky because, as you mentioned, first half of the year, we were talking about Austin Hayes as a potential all-star. But then we have mentioned on multiple podcasts since then, the second half struggles for Hayes are just too big to ignore right now. And again, as you were looking at the Orioles as a playoff contending team going into next season, can you do that with Austin Hayes getting every day at bats? We've already seen his at-bats kind of go down lately. He's not getting as many consistent everyday starts. He's still in the lineup close to everyday, But I think Brandon Hyde has been a little quicker to give him a day of rest than we are used to seeing. So that might tell you something about the Orioles' current confidence in what Austin Hayes is bringing. I don't think it is the highest priority upgrade. I think when you're looking at the lineup... I think a middle infield upgrade is a higher priority. And of course, when you're looking at the team as a whole, I think starting pitching is a higher upgrade priority. That's an off-season podcast where we will talk about what the top needs on the team are. But while it's not a high priority, I think it's still very possible to upgrade from Austin Hayes in terms of a starting left fielder.
0: I think this is an area where the Orioles are probably hoping for a little bit more of internal improvements. I think in the infield, yes, you can look at Jordan Westberg potentially making this opening day roster. You could look at Taron Vavra getting a little bit better in the infield and Gunnar Henderson getting better. But I still think even with all those internal improvements, I think that you still need to make an upgrade. Here's an area in left field where I think that if Austin Hayes can't be consistently relied upon as an offensive producer, the good thing is you do have Kyle Stowers who could take a step up. You do have Ryan McKenna, who's a nice depth piece. And you have Colton Cowser on the way. Yep. Who's a AAA Norfolk, who is a top five prospect in your system, who is a top 100 prospect, according to some outlets, top 50. I think the ceiling is higher for a Colton Kowser and you can hope for more from Colton Kowser than you can from a Jordan Westberg. This is an area I think that the Orioles, they could afford to upgrade if they want to. I wouldn't, don't think there's anything wrong with trying to sign a, a big-time power guy corner outfielder, but I think that you can go into next season with the group that you have, with Mullins, Santander, Stowers, McKenna, and Kowser on the way, and be okay with
1: that. I agree. I think if I'm calling the shots for next season, I am fine with Austin Hayes starting the year as your everyday left fielder with Ryan McKenna as your depth piece. And if these struggles continue, then it's Colton Kowser time. Because it, it more than likely will be Colton Kowser time at some point next season. He's already at AAA. He has been putting up fantastic numbers in A Bowie. So Colton Kowser's trajectory is doing nothing but going up. So I think you're fine with what you have in the org where maybe you're hoping for some more consistency out of Austin Hayes. And if you don't get it there, then you can start Colton Kowser maybe by mid season next year.
0: The only concern is that Colton Kowser is a little bit slower progressing than you hope. Because we saw that happen with D.L. Hall, where we were saying D.L. Hall would be a rotation piece by season's end. But as
1: of right now, he's not. I mean, he's one of three players from his draft class who has reached the AAA level or better. He's hitting 130 with AAA Norfolk. He is. That's the concern.
0: So they they have a few weeks left in the season. But if he finishes, it's likely he's going to finish his time in AAA hitting below the Mendoza line. Yes, he can take steps forward, but... You're not then looking at that guy as maybe an opening day guy. You're looking at him as a midseason guy, but there's also a chance that he doesn't hit well for the first couple months of next season. And then he's going to be a fresh 23 at the start of next year. There's no guarantee that that guy's going to be better. That's the downside. That's the floor for this outfield, is if Austin Hayes is hitting around where he's hitting now, which is 7.15 OPS, which is not great. Anthony Santander is a DH. Kyle Stowers doesn't take a step. Cedric Mullins is solid, but he's not, you know, anything other than a a quality, slightly above average offensive player. The downside is that's a below average outfield with the floor, but the ceiling can be a lot higher if Couser finishes the season strong,
1: if he comes into next year a much improved player. I agree with you on all of those points, but I just think that they're probably going to be fine with what's in the org. I agree. I think they'll look at a potential outfield upgrade, but I think it would have to be a big name that's too hard to pass up if they're going to upgrade in the outfield.
0: And, and again, this is why Santander is so important because I heard people mentioning trading Santander. If you trade Santander, your floor then for that outfield becomes so much lower. Right. If you trade him for a non-major league player right now, if you trade him just for prospects there's very few, you need your outfield to be one of the stronger units of your team offensively, and that outfield would not be without Santander. Even if you give Kyle Stowers every day at bats and he takes a step up, you're still not going to be an above-average outfield offensively, maybe defensively, but you need a little bit more from your outfield if you trade Santander, so you almost have to keep him in my mind.
1: These are not the trades of years past. You are not trading quality major league players who can help you over the next 2-3 years and I think Anthony Santander has the potential to do that. I know in years past you have wanted to unload veteran talent for prospects, but that's not where the Orioles are right now. They are in let's build a competitive team mode and I think the offseason will reflect that. Yeah. And I think that the Orioles could go
0: out and sign one big pitcher and one big middle of the order bat. I think that's doable. Yeah. Like Elias said we will sign free agents. He didn't sign, say we will sign one big free agent and that's it. He said this offseason we're going to sign free agents. I don't know how much they're going to commit to these you know, free agents, but I think it's very possible, considering how low the payroll has been the last several years and how much money they've saved, that they could splurge and go and get a middle-of-the-order bat and just top-tier, two number two, number three starting pitcher. So I think it's all within the realm of possibility. Don't want to get my hopes up, but it's possible. It's possible. We're going to talk more specifically as we get into the offseason about some names that might fit those roles. But there are a lot of guys that might align with this rebuild, both age-wise and production-wise. So going to be interesting conversations that we're going to have. But right now, I think it's safe to say, yes, this offense can get better next year with the guys that they have in-house. They're going to take steps forward. The guys that we you know, have seen as rookies and as second-year players have shown us flashes, but there's reason to believe they're going to get better. We can
1: like what we have and still say we can get better. Absolutely. And as we're throwing out names of players that, you know, could be upgraded, again, it's nothing against a Ramon Rias or an Austin Hayes or a Jorge Mateo. Those are still quality, valuable players, but we'd be remiss if we were... It would be a little bit naive to say there's no possible way that you can upgrade from yeah. these guys in the offseason. That doesn't mean they're not valuable players. It just means that there's room for growth. And the Orioles have hit their last
0: several drafts from what where we are right now. You know, it's still very early. They've hit their several drafts out of the park. They've done a very good job drafting, very good job acquiring talent via trades. You just can't build an entire roster through the draft, and through trades. Right. You have to sign guys at some point. So the hope is that the Orioles will sign some guys to big-time money deals, big years maybe, and that they will sign the right guys. All right, Brandon, let's talk about the the rule changes. Yeah, Got a whole slew of rule changes at the end of last week. Haven't really had time to discuss them on this podcast yet. Breaking it down into three or four categories. The pitch clock, banning the shift... Limiting pickoffs and bigger bases. All meant to improve pace of play, player safety, balls in play, action on the base paths, all of that stuff. We'll go through them individually, but I think as a whole, it's good to see that baseball is making these changes. It's good to see that they are open to making changes. And we see the NFL make changes every single year around the edges. This feels like a massive overhaul all at once, but I think it's partly because we've been waiting so long for any kind of changes to happen that these changes are pretty overdue, and now we're finally getting them all at once, and it's going to be a crazy adjustment period going into next year.
1: Like you said, I'm happy that changes as a whole are being made. Yeah. There are some changes that I don't really like. We'll get into that individually, but it is, in general, nice to see baseball taking a step towards trying to improve the game.
0: Yeah, and if the changes don't work, would be nice if the organization goes back and says, all right, here's what worked, here's what didn't. We can scrap this, and we'll implement this going forward, but it's you have to actually have the change be made at the big league level for you to <laughs> be able to assess it. All right, first up, Brendan, pitch clock. 30 seconds between batters, 15 seconds between pitches with the bases empty, 20 seconds with runners on between pitches, and batters must be in the box and alert when the clock hits eight seconds. I love this. Yep. I think this is a much needed change. Baseball is the only clock that doesn't, the the only clock, the only sport that doesn't have a clock. I get that. However, how many games do we see creep into three and a half hours, close to four hours, simply because Batters aren't in the batter's box when they should be. Pitchers aren't on the rubber when they should be. This is an area where you need to trim the fat and you need to speed up the game. We've already seen it implemented in the minor leagues. It's working incredibly well. Yes, players will complain about it for the first several months of the year and then they'll get over it. I think this is a great change that is going
1: to speed up the game and make, make it more exciting. Yep, I love it. I'm all about it. We've seen it multiple times in person in the minor leagues. It just makes things go faster. It yep. doesn't change the game. It just gets the pitcher and the hitter ready to go. How many times have we just been watching a baseball game on the couch and it takes however many seconds for a pitcher to just kind of stand behind the mound or a batter to readjust his batting gloves 17 times? Yep, It doesn't change the game. It just makes it faster. Great rule change. And the good thing is because we've already seen it
0: in the minor leagues, a lot of guys who are going to be debuting or or have already debuted – have played with it before. A lot of pitchers are used to it. So they're not going to be the ones complaining. It's going to be the veterans. It's going to be the guys who are 30, 35 years old who have been pitching a long time and say, I like to do things my way. I get it, but the game has to speed up, and this is an easy way to do it. Uh, Another way that this game can speed up, and this is another pitcher adjustment, limiting pickoffs. So they're getting two disengagements, which is either a pickoff or a step off per plate appearance the third one you either have to get the runner or it's a balk when i first heard of this rule i was concerned about how they would enforce it because i was worried that you limit the pickoffs then the third time the guy the runner's just going to take a 15 foot lead right. because he's not concerned about the throw over i like that they have something built in here where you can throw over a third time. So you still have to keep that. That runner still has to maintain a certain distance from the bag because you can't take a 30-foot lead because you can still be thrown out. But you could get a balk if you don't get that guy. Pickoffs, how many times have we seen in games? Like you said, for how many times have we seen players just adjust their batting gloves and just take a step off and take their hat off? How many times have we seen pitchers you got to keep him honest. you got to keep him close. And you just see him step off and have this lackadaisical throw over to first base that everybody knows the guy's not going. Everybody knows the pickoff is not a serious pickoff. The first baseman doesn't even need to apply the tag. It's just to keep the guy honest. And it slows down the game so, so much. Anytime Cedric Mullins or Jorge Mateo is on base, we see eight of these per at-bat, per, at-bat, per plate appearance. And then they end up running anyway. This is going to speed up the game so much and is going to take away these unnecessary pickoffs and step offs that just
1: take away time and waste time for everybody watching this game. I'm kind of indifferent on this one. I don't think it's going to have as large of an impact on game time as the pitch clock. I think it's fine because I don't think it changes strategy all that much. And I know there are occasions where, yeah, maybe a Jorge Mateo or a Cedric Mullins is on base and the pitcher is throwing over a ton of times during an at-bat. That, that doesn't happen terribly often during games. Maybe it'll happen one, two, three times a game. So I don't think it's going to change a ton. I'm kind of indifferent on it. I think it's fine.
0: I think the interesting thing will be the third pickoff. Yeah. That is going to be actually, I think, an exciting thing to see in action because we're going to see the gears turning in guys heads with Mullins and Mateo. Do I risk taking an even bigger lead after this guy has already used his two pickoffs? Because I think he's not going to have the guts to throw over here because he he wants to avoid a block here. Or do we think, you know what? I'm going to stick with my same lead here because the chances of getting picked off are just too good or just too high. And it's not worth it. I think that is going to be an interesting thing to watch. I agree. I think the pitch clock is going to have by far the biggest impact on time of game. But I do think that this is going to help because personally, it's a pet peeve of mine when pitchers just these lazy throws over to first base just to keep him honest. I get it. He's not running. He doesn't even have to dive
1: back in. It just slows the game down so, so much. We don't need it. But... I will say, personally, I am a little sad that it will limit one of my favorite funny things about baseball, which is being at a game a pitcher throws over and the entire crowd just boos. Yeah. As if to collectively say, stop being a nerd. It's fine. Let him run. I I think it's hilarious. I don't know why fans boo every time a pitcher throws over because because it's like it's you want to make sure that you can keep a runner on. I just think it's hilarious that everyone has decided – that this is a dumb thing that I don't like. And if you throw over, you're a nerd. That's Stop me. doing it. That's me. I, I just think it's really funny. That's me. I would be the one booing. Because it
0: slows down the game. Let's go. Let's play the game. I just think it's hilarious. It's just, and I love It's. It. I, I'm the one. I'm that guy.
1: I guess so. All right. Uh,
0: so those are the kind of pace of play changes that they are making. In terms of player safety and uh, speeding up. The game on the base pass, making some a little bit more exciting game on the base pass in addition to the pickoffs. Bigger bases. Love it. We're seeing the bases going from 15 inches square to 18 inches square. So this doesn't change the, you know, the distance between home plate and first base because that is measured to the back of the base. So it is still going to be 90 feet between home plate and first base, between home plate and third base. But what it does is it, Creates a four and a half inch reduction in space between first base and second base, second base and third base. Home plate is going to remain unchanged. That is going to, believe it or not, I know four and a half inches doesn't sound like a whole lot, make your jokes, but it is going to help runners on the base pass be a little bit more comp be a little bit more confident that they could steal a base. And it is going to make them, I think, a slightly bit more aggressive. Running the base pass. Yeah. I think that we're
1: going to see more stolen bases next year because of this rule. I think the more stolen bases could be cool. I'm more concerned with the player safety aspect of it, where hopefully we will not see any first baseman get an ankle rolled up on, anybody get accidentally spiked. There is more room on a wider base for a runner going to first to take a little bit of a wider berth outside of where the first baseman is trying to step. So just from that aspect of it, I think it's great. If there are more stolen bases because of this rule, that's fine. I I think that's a cool little added bonus to prioritizing player safety because I think this is a good rule that will hopefully help first baseman, again, not get injured by any freak plays where their foot is further back than they thought and they get stepped on. That's an ugly injury that we shouldn't see at all, and this is a really easy solution to It's that. like the
0: softball where you have the first baseman's bag and then the runner's bag. Yeah. So that you would just exactly avoid that. Exactly the same. It's exactly the same. Uh, but yes, uh, and I do think that this will actually make things a little bit faster on the base pass, which frankly, that has been an area of the game that has gone by the wayside is the stolen base. Jorge Mateo and Cedric Mullins are near the top of the American League with about 30 stolen bases. Those numbers in previous years, we would be at seeing 40, 45 stolen bases at this point in the year. Yeah. So it analytically, right now, doesn't make sense for runners to take bases. That's that's why we've seen fewer stolen bases. It's not because, you know, runners are getting slower. It's because analytics tell you it doesn't make sense to give another team an out on the base pads. And it doesn't outweigh the risk of getting thrown out. So this hopefully will increase the risk of getting into second or getting into third safely on a stolen base attempt. And it will increase stolen base totals for some of the faster guys in the league, which I think is exciting. I love a stolen base. I love catchers trying to throw somebody out. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Um, All right. Biggest, probably most controversial rule on this list, Brendan. (sighs) Banning the shift. Yep. Four infielders must be on the dirt. And two must be on each side of second base. Gone are the days of the four-man outfield, like we've seen deployed against Adley Rutschman. And gone are the days of three infielders being on the right side of second base with your second baseman playing short right field and your third baseman over on short left center field, right center field, trying to guard second. All of that is gone. You're getting four guys on the infield dirt, and you're getting two on each side of second base. I
1: hate it. (laughs) And I want to preface my argument by saying that there are still going to be shifts, I think. If there is a left-handed hitter up, the second baseman is going to be as far back in the dirt as possible, and I'm I'm sure the shortstop is going to be as close to behind second base as possible. So I'm prefacing my argument by saying the shift is still going to exist in the limited capacity that it now can. But I hate it for two reasons. The first of which is just that this is a rule change that is coming about because teams figured out how to play more effective defense against hitters. I know it affects left-handed hitters in a much more severe way than right-handed hitters. But teams figured out how to play against left-handed power hitters. They put their second baseman or shortstop in shallow right field. They put their shortstop there because analytically, they're not going to hit the ball to the left side. You're pretty much just making this rule because teams figured out how to play the game more effectively. And the second reason I don't really like it is because I don't think you gave hitters quite enough time to find an equilibrium. The argument for the shift has always been, well, just learn to hit to the opposite side. That's a hard thing to do. I think if you had given hitters a little bit more time to try to adjust to the shift, we've seen the adjustment on the defensive side. The shifts have been massive. But we've also seen players in Major League Baseball that don't really get shifted against. Juan Soto, Bryce Harper, players like that who have been able to hit to the opposite side effectively to the point where defenses have said, okay, there's no point in shifting this guy. He can hit to all fields. And I understand that those are maybe roles that are reserved for some of the better hitters in the league. But I think if you had given hitters a little bit more time to adjust to what defenses are doing, I think we would have seen a little bit more of a natural equilibrium where defenses wouldn't shift as severely because hitters would have adjusted a little bit more to start hitting to the opposite side. I know we haven't seen it a ton, but I think it's possible that if you had given it a little bit more time, we would have seen an equilibrium there. I agree with your points. The one thing I will say is
0: Juan Soto, Bryce Harper, those guys still face extreme shifts. They do. They, regardless of whether they can hit the other way, those power-hitting left-handed hitters. I mean, Bryce Harper will drop a bunt down the third base line and reach base. Teams are still conceding that. And yes, he hits the ball the other way, but I think that if he's hitting the ball the other way, he's getting a single regardless, pretty much. So those guys are still shifted upon. Sure. So it's not like teams have said, oh, well, now, you know, he dropped a bunt down the third base line. We can't shift Bryce Harper again. But I will say, I, I do think this is an unfortunate kind of punishment for teams that have figured out how to align their defense in ways that take away hits. What concerns me is guys who were already beating the shift, like a Soto, like a Harper, who already had extreme shifts on them and still were hitting the ball through the infield, were still hitting balls past that second baseman who's now playing short right field, and still putting up monster numbers— are they going to put up Ted Williams' numbers? Are we going to see Juan Soto and Bryce Harper, because there's one guy, there's the first baseman, and the second baseman on the right side of the infield. Are we going to see those guys now hit 400? Because there are now massive gaps between the infielders where there weren't guys? So I think we could see some strange effects here, especially from left-handed hitters. And I do think it's a little bit of an overreaction and an overcorrection because that is, you talk about pace of play, what helps keep the game at its current length and not go longer is guys, fewer base runners, where if Bryce Harper and Juan Soto, let's say they get a single one out of every four at-bats, and now it's one out of every you know three at-bats because they're hitting the ball through the right side with ease, that could lengthen the game that could make the game a little bit longer because you're seeing more
1: singles where they would have been outs. I understand the product of the game argument where fans want to see more balls in play. They think it's more exciting. I get it. But this rule essentially is saying that pitchers and defenses are too good. They can't keep doing this anymore. We we need to help the hitters a little bit. I just don't like it. It, You're just changing the game because pitchers and team defenses have figured
0: out how to play the game better. Right, and I don't think it's an issue. Like, I think that the pitch clock is implemented because there was a clear issue that wasn't going to resolve itself. Right. Like, the the game was getting slower and slower, and unless umpires were going to start enforcing the, you know, rule about batters being stepping out, which is a rule, but they just don't enforce it, that problem was not going to fix itself, so you implement a rule to fix a clear problem. I don't think this was a problem. Because like I said, the good hitters are still shifted upon and they still hit well. Right. So yes, you see, you've seen it hurt guys. I think you saw it hurt a lot of guys who the shift really started to gain traction later in their careers. I think of guys like Ryan Howard who had been hitting the ball through the right side for so long and then they add the shift and all of a sudden his numbers go down dramatically. I think now left-handed hitters coming up know that there's going to be a shift exactly so they have to be able to hit the ball past guys or be able to go the other way so i don't think i think this problem was on its way to correcting itself like you said there was reached an equilibrium was getting close to being achieved and there's still room and there's still value for guys who hit the ball the other way that still is a valuable thing especially guys who don't have great power numbers, but they're left-handed hitters and they can poke the ball the other way and you can't shift on them, there's still value in those guys. So I think this is a problem that didn't need a written rule and on-the-book
1: solution here. I just think it's a massive overcorrection. Yeah, I think, again, like I said, I understand that fans want to see balls in play. I understand that Major League Baseball is... Doing what they think the fans want. And as we're looking at comments on YouTube and Facebook, fans seem to like the fact that the shift is getting banned because of the product of the game. But I just I don't like punishing teams yeah. for figuring out ways to play the game better. That's all that happened here. They didn't break any rules. They didn't cheat. They didn't do anything like that. They looked at the numbers. They figured out where to put their defenders in the most opportune spots to get more outs, and you are now punishing teams for that. All right, let's talk about how these changes could affect the Orioles in
0: particular. We'll have a whole offseason to kind of discuss the roster machinations that the Orioles could make. Not like the Orioles would react to this with any kind of roster changes, but I think the Orioles are kind of nicely set up. As much as we hate that last rule change, we like the other ones, it might actually benefit the Orioles because you look at the way that the Orioles are set up in the future, look at all the lefties or switch hitters that they have in their lineup. Adley Rutschman, who already we said is a crazy shift against him with four outfielders, which is now impossible. You have Kyle Stowers, who's a nice prospect, lefty. You have Terran Vavra. You have Anthony Santander, who's a lefty. You have Gunnar Henderson, who's a lefty. You have Colton Cowser, who's a lefty. You just drafted Jackson Holliday, who's a lefty. I think this change is going to help lefties a lot more than it is going to help righties. And I think the Orioles are nicely set up to the point where they could actually benefit from
1: this offensively because they're going to have a lot of lefties hitting the ball through those gaps. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the Orioles could be rolling out lineups with six, seven left-handed hitters in them. Yeah, and Cedric Mullins. If this shift has Dylan Beavers. If this shift has the impact that we believe it's going to have for left-handed hitters, because that's who has been negatively impacted the most. Cesar yeah. Prieto. The Orioles are set up pretty well. I'm just naming lefties.
0: Yeah. They, the Orioles, we've said Michael Elias really likes lefties. He likes drafting them. He likes acquiring them. And maybe he saw this coming. This is galaxy brain thinking. He was seeing this coming from a long ways away. Who knows? Uh, but it is, I think, set up to kind of help them in that way. The other way I think the Orioles might, have a good answer to this rule is with that middle infield. Because, yes, I think they're going to upgrade. They probably should upgrade that middle infield. But you look at some of the rangy, athletic, defensive players that they already have in that infield. Gunner Anderson, we're talking about a pure shortstop who might be playing third base next year because Jorge Mateo is one of the rangiest athletes at shortstop in the game right now. I think you're going to need a very good, rangy, defensive player at second base. They have Jorge Mateo, maybe he's going to play some second base next year because you need a good defender there because he's got to cover more ground against lefties than he did in previous years. You could talk about Joey Ortiz maybe coming up and being a speedy, rangy infielder. Jordan Westbrook, who's a shortstop, who maybe converted to a second base out of need. So the Orioles are set up nicely where they have some nice, young, athletic middle infielders to the point where they might get to some balls at
1: second base that other teams wouldn't. Yeah, it helps you defensively and with the bigger base rule as well. The Orioles are loaded with athletes between Jorge Mateo, Cedric Mullins. There's a lot of guys who can steal bases. Gunnar Henderson could steal a lot of bases potentially. So maybe the bigger bases will give you a little bit of a better chance to steal and the Orioles' athleticism will continue to help them. Uh, I saw a comment as well about
0: how this change was only made because of the pathetic inability of MLB players to hit the ball the other way. Guess what? Guys can hit the ball the other way. Hitting a baseball is so hard. One, it's, one, it's hard. But two, yes, it, it is great. I mean, if you can hit the ball the other way, good for you. You can get a single. That's just as important, just as good as a walk. A walk is just as good as that. And two, it's better to hit the ball hard. So if you hit the ball hard, you're still going to get it through the shift, like I said, on the right side. With a lefty. And guys who hit the ball hard get doubles and get home runs a whole lot more than guys who don't hit the ball hard. And the money for these players is in home runs and extra base hits. It's not for slap hits the other way. So they're incentivized to hit the ball through the shift on the right side. It's not that they can't do it, it's that they know that they're going up against a shift and they still have to hit
1: through it. And this opens up a whole other can of worms, too. Because anyway, it just had to go off. It's a whole. Are you lo- really looking at batting average in yeah. the year 2022? Are you looking at extra base hits and home runs? It, it, that is what is important. Yeah. And, and that is what the game is. That is what the analytics have said are the best ways to score runs. Is obviously home runs, extra yep. base hits, slap singles the other way against the shift are awesome. And we still see players, good players like Juan Soto, Bryce Harper, maybe in a one strike, two strike count, they shorten up their approach. Yeah. They go against the shift to the other way. That's great. If there's no strikes, they're trying yeah. to hit a home run to the pull side. That's, they should. They, as they should. Yeah, because, because a home run is, is worth four times as much as a single. <laughs> because that's how you win baseball. It's And a double is worth twice as much as a single. <laughs> I This is a whole other can yeah. of worms about what people believe to be a quality product of baseball. Yep. It's not slap singles against the shift. No. It's, it's home runs. It's extra base hits. People shaking their fist at the sky. Yeah. Um, all right, that just
0: about does it. We've gone on very long on this podcast. We have. At Brandon Mortius, his Twitter handle. I am at Paul Mancano. Thanks to Tim Leonard for producing this podcast. Plenty more to discuss as the regular season uh, winds to a finish. and Then we'll have a lot to talk about in the off season as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. Give us a thumbs up, a like, share with your friends, all that good stuff. Thanks for uh, joining us here on this rainy Tuesday, and we will catch you next time.